0: Good morning, and welcome to this webinar. I'm Debbie Krennick, publisher of Newsday. Today, we're kicking off the first in a series of educational webinars on how the coronavirus is affecting Long Island schools. Before we get started, just a reminder that we're also streaming this live on newsday.com, so if at any time you experience problems on this webinar platform, head over to newsday.com. Last Friday, Governor Cuomo officially closed schools and colleges. His announcement paved the way for distance learning to replace the classroom setting for the academic year. But it also left so many unanswered questions, and not just for educators. It impacted parents and hundreds of thousands of students right here on Long Island. To try to answer some of these questions and provide an insight into the academic direction, it's my pleasure to welcome the Honorable Roger Tillis, a member of the New York State Board of Regents, and Dr. Thomas Rogers, Superintendent of Schools for the Syosset Central School District. Thank you both for joining us. I'd also like to welcome Newsday columnist and editorial writer, Lane Filler, who will be moderating today's webinar. Over to you, Lane.
1: Thank you so much, Debbie. And before we start, I, I just want to thank Tom and Roger for joining us today as well. So before we jump into the actual questions, we're gonna show and comment on a couple of slides that'll help everybody catch up on, on how we got here and where we're at. And after that, we'll start doing the questions and hopefully answers as well, because that's the hard part. So yeah, last Friday, after a lot of uh, conversation and a lot of time, the governor said that we were going to go ahead and not reopen the schools this year. And, uh, tom and roger you guys can go ahead and comment on these as we go uh we don't know what's going on in the summer yet we don't know what's going on in the fall yet we've only just found out what's going on the rest of this year
2: that's correct that's what we know
1: this is an important slide because it makes the point that schools are doing so much more than educating our kids on a daily basis now uh so meal programs have continued to the best of the district's ability and, and some other and childcare services are being provided for employees who have to uh, help keep this society running yeah so these are the questions we are going to try to if not exactly answer today at least talk about how we think about and what we're looking for
3: So, Lane, I would point out that, um, you know, on your previous slide, you uh, indicated that uh, we are doing a lot in addition to trying to provide continuity of instruction for students. And uh, we are learning from that process. And also, you know, the the governor just made a decision about what's going to happen for the rest of the school year. Uh, They're not even prepared yet to make a decision about what will happen in uh, July. And so we know that if that decision is several weeks off, then probably the decision about what will happen in the fall is several months off. And uh, I think what's been helpful, at least from a planning perspective, uh, in my view, is that uh, the governor has now started to lay out some criteria and some phases for how he sees uh, the economy and ultimately schools reopening. And because those phases are tied to data, it is possible for us now to follow along in the decision-making process, and that helps us in the planning process. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, we met. I met yesterday, and uh, with uh, our Nassau County BOCES director Bob Dylan, uh, and asked uh, on behalf of the board of regents for him to survey all the schools in Nassau County and uh, see which ones have the proper have have the proper broadband, Wi-Fi, uh, hardware, etc. Uh, and could actually have uh, communication going back and forth. Not everyone did. Um, that is being ongoing now. It also is is uh, asking what specific kinds of uh, online teaching that they've been doing. Um, some schools I know have done everything from go to meeting and Zoom uh, direct classes, uh, equaling the classes in their schools. Others have done nothing but... Um, uh, put put a link in uh, for students to click on and getting their homework assignments, and without any real interface with teachers uh, and others, don't even have the equipment and, and the possibility of getting such uh, communication. So we're we're taking steps now. We will know within a few days uh, what what Nassau County looks like um, beyond anecdotes, which is what we have right now. We are the regions have are going to try to put together a um, a plan for uh, the the minimal kind of online teaching that's needed, assuming to some degree that this uh, at home teaching is going to continue uh, through the summer and possibly even the fall. We haven't we have no indication that the governor is going to open things up before then. And the only indication I have is the amount of parents that I've talked to who won't send their kids back to school until they know it is absolutely safe. That means some kind of guarantees that there's either a vaccine or that schools are going to be have to take place in a lot different ways than they have in the past.
1: Right. And Tom, it seems like maybe that's a real divide that school leaders are seeing between a camp of parents that want their kids back in school yesterday and a camp of parents that are very scared to send them back at all. What are you seeing?
3: Yeah, well, I think it's a question that parents would be right to ask. I think um, the challenge for schools will be, uh, we need the state to make health decisions. School districts are not set up to evaluate health risks. We're, we can evaluate risks that we're familiar with, the risk of uh, running a bus on a, a snowy day, potentially. But in terms of making these kinds of big uh, balancing decisions about public health, you really need people with that kind of expertise. So before we closed in March, uh, the rules for schools were, if you had any evidence of uh, the virus in the school, you would shut down immediately, stop instruction, and clean the school for a period of at least 24 hours. So if those rules go back into place in the fall, it's hard to imagine that there won't be any community transmission of any kind in the fall. So uh, the state really needs to tell us what their uh, new plan would be if there is going to be in-person instruction, knowing that we probably won't be at a place where zero is the baseline. And then what's fair for parents is to wonder about how those risks are mitigated. And I think that's probably the reason why uh, Governor Cuomo said that schools reopening would be in the fourth and final phase of his plan is just because it is uh, so complicated and so difficult, and uh, the consequences are so serious.
2: In addition to the in addition to the kids and the parents having a problem, the employees of the district, uh, from teachers, uh, bus drivers, cafeteria workers, are also going to have real uh, concerns about whether or not they want to go back into what they might consider an incubator. Uh, or they might see as a uh, sanitary place to work.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay. Great. We could obviously spend an hour or 24 hours on any of these slides and questions, but I'm going to, we'll, we'll keep trying to move it along as much as we can. Um, so, go ahead, Roger.
2: Well, on the colleges, it. it I don't think the colleges have yet determined how they're going to uh, provide uh, any kind of education services in the fall. Many of them that I've talked to are not going to have uh, in-class teaching in the fall and will continue on with uh, what they have done uh, in the spring. Uh, It is still a question whether they can do that uh, effectively or more effectively than they have. or whether they will open up later in the fall with a a full program on campus. Um, It is, the colleges were ahead of most school districts in terms of being able to provide online education. Many of them have done that before. School systems, uh, other than places like Tom's and Syosset and and a few others on Long Island who have really excellent online teaching, um, uh, really were caught Almost by surprise, uh, the the teaching staffs really had no experience uh, using it, and it took a while. We're on, I think we're on phase three with many school districts. Uh, phase one was just trying to figure out how to how to get the systems on. Mm-hmm. Uh, phase two was to figure out how to get some instruction to students, and now they are looking at perhaps uh, a more efficacious way of uh, Providing that service, colleges have been a little ahead of it. I don't know about. Um, I haven't heard anything about sharing services. I have talked. I have talked to some people who have run early college high schools. Uh, uh, Bard College is one that has done that, and trying to see if there's any opportunities where uh, some students could go to Bard and get high school credit. Um, I, I, there's a lot of logistics that would have to be worked out between high schools and those colleges uh, to have that happen. Uh, that is one alternative,
1: though. I have to thank you for the shout out. I am a Simon's Rock of Bard College
3: graduate, Associate of Arts, many, many years ago. And okay. Roger, I'll thank you for the shout out as well. But I'll say that uh, even though I think we were off to a fast start, Uh, We're learning as we go and we're trying to iterate uh, also as we go. And part of the reason why um, colleges were ahead of this is because colleges have been doing this online for about 10 years. And we've been doing a lot of uh, work looking at the research. And there is a lot of research on older learners, college age and high school age learners in online environments. But the research is fairly thin on middle school and elementary school. There's a little bit around homeschooling that's done online but this has really not been a model that uh, has been attempted much at the younger ages. And as a result of that, there's not a lot of information about it. So one of um, the things that I think uh, the regents, the state education department uh, could help inspire is uh, some effort on the part of colleges to do some research about what is working and what could work for these younger populations of learners. One of the challenges is that um, we use this um, esoteric term executive function, but it really is uh, our students at that age able to stay focused, to have the stamina and to retain what they learn when they're just being spoken to. What happens in a classroom is that they're doing things and it's the doing that uh, allows them to acquire the skills and knowledge. And it's much harder to set those kinds of things up online particularly because they don't have the stamina uh, to stay with it for hours a day. So, so that, how do we address that as, um, if this is gonna be a sustained model, how do we address the the developmental stages of our learners? Uh, so the that,
2: reg- Regents are, have set up a task force uh, of, of people from all over the state and all kinds of stakeholders in education, from parents to uh, specific providers, to teachers, to board members, et cetera, that is, um, being put in place now, the chief state school officers of of the country uh, have, are basically almost completing their research on exactly the issue that Tom was talking about. So we will have some guidance and there, you know, there's a lot of research being done. Um, It just hasn't been completed yet. Mm -hmm. And the third part that I think is really interesting on colleges, uh, last Friday was decision day for colleges. Uh, the day that, that students were supposed to indicate whether they're coming, whether they're not coming, etc., cetera, uh, if they were invited to come. Uh, from what I have heard from colleges, uh, there's, there's a lot of flux in there th- that all of a sudden students are, are not committing to the college that they think might be online in, in the fall when, and pay 50, $70,000 for that um, when they could go to uh, a college or a university that's been doing online teaching for many, many years, such as Arizona State University or uh, some other school that uh, is uh, far cheaper uh, for an online program. It, it, mm. It's so- put colleges into a real quandary right now. Mm-hmm. So uh, it brings
1: me to an interesting question. I know a lot of people who are listening now, it, this isn't a theoretical problem. They have actual kids or they're actual teachers and they don't know what to do or how to prepare. So, So let me ask you, Tom and Roger, if it's certainly possible that everyone won't be sitting in a classroom in September. If you're a parent, how are you preparing for that now to make sure that between the district and what you do, your child will be getting an appropriate education and moving forward the way they need to. And then let's start off talking about, you know, not an average student, but a mainstream student, a, a student with essentially normal capabilities or, or or,
3: you know what I'm saying. Well, so, I think that,
2: well, go ahead,
3: Tom. Obviously that's what we're trying to figure out right now. And uh, we are learning from the experience that we've had over these last six weeks, what's working, what isn't working. Uh, what needs to be changed and iterated. Uh, One of the things that the governor has said is that schools are obviously important as an educational institution, but they're also important as a childcare institution. And so I I am presuming that some of uh, the calculus in Albany will be around the need to provide parents with more childcare support. And that may influence uh, how much in-person childcare we do, uh, in-person education we do because of uh, the childcare we're running a child care program now for essential workers uh, in one of our school buildings and so obviously it's already occurring but um, as the economy reopens i know that parents are going to be needing that kind of support at the same time uh, as we've said it's hard to imagine that there won't be some sort at least some sort of hybrid model in the fall and we want to make that as robust as can be the advantage is that we'll have a little more time before the fall to plan out how to structure lessons that may go back and forth between uh, online and in-person learning because those lessons will have to be structured differently. Mm. Um,
1: So to some extent, right now, while kids are doing this work at home, they are essentially doing a very structured form of homeschooling. And that means that the parents are doing a form of professional teaching, or or teacher assistant, or what have you. How do how does a parent with no experience at that give their child what they need as a partner with the schools in distance
2: learning? Well, I think that that uh, your your initial assumption that it's becoming a, a programmatic uh, uh, stronghold in the house, um, even with parents who are who are capable of of Potentially being teaching their kids, um, are, are there's a there's a disconnect in some districts about the way they are doing the online teaching that parents don't understand it or don't really want to get involved with it. Um, no less parents that don't have the capabilities of doing it. I, I've seen it all over the place, uh, even in some of the same households. Depending on how it's been done, um, it, it is live and it is being essential and being uh, a, a good part of, a, of a, that kid's life versus uh, being a more passive uh, kind of program that comes in with a link and maybe the parents will help, maybe the parents won't, but the kids don't seem to be that enthusiastic about it. Um, that along with being quarantined in their house and, and not uh, having the kind of social interaction that they're used to uh, is causing some severe, I think, severe mental health problems that have to be dealt with uh, when, whenever we come back and hopefully before then.
1: Okay. Uh, So I've been bogging you down with a lot of my own questions and curiosities, although some of them are paraphrased forms of questions coming from the audience. But let me get directly to addressing some of the concerns that are coming through right now. So Tracy, that's Tracy Edwards, the Long Island Regional Director of the NAACP, has sent several questions along to us. And I think maybe one of the most important ones is, How is the state education department and the districts tracking and reporting disparities within the school districts or across the board? The kids don't have Chromebooks or laptops or internet access. And then how are are the districts responding and how should they be responding to those needs?
2: Uh, I think, as I said, we first have to get the data and um, the data is being gathered not only here in Nassau County, but in various regions around the state uh, to see exactly the extent of that. We know that it is happening. We know it, it's it's anecdotally very, very logical for uh, students who are getting uh, the kind of education through uh, class-to-class, face-to-face teaching versus those that don't have anything. Um, and it's usually the districts where their gap already exists between Uh, high and low performing districts. Uh, Every day that goes on that we don't answer that question is causing the gap to get wider and wider. The same thing holds true for uh, some of our schools where there are large numbers of English language learners that uh, are having where there's more difficulty in teaching all the classes uh, in the language that the student understands or that the parents understand to help their students with that gap is also widening. Um, we are looking at all of these things. This is where the our task force uh, will have some answers, hopefully, uh, before school starts next fall. I don't know if we're going to have, I don't think we're going to have answers uh, between now and, and the middle of June or the end of June, which is another question that we need to answer, um, is when does school end right. this year? Um, so- Go ahead. Okay. The uh, the the uh, spring break was taken from uh, the kids and 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 faculty uh, to continue on uh, at the governor's urging, and it 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 happened and and virtually all districts uh, did it willingly and the teachers did it willingly, but there is a question whether or not those days are going to be made up at the end of the school year by shortening the school year by the same amount. Uh, there, are, there are contractual obligations for 180 days of teaching, not 190 days of teaching. So right. that's one that has to be answered and we ha- I don't have an answer for that.
1: So, so Tom, what are you hearing from parents and teachers about whether they should be uh, teaching for those last 10 days after they lost the break? Do, does everyone, do people seem to think that we need to keep going or that it's enough?
3: Well, I think that in the end, as Roger said, is going to be a decision that gets made from Albany. I think uh, parents obviously want to have instruction for their students. And you know, to your earlier question and Roger's answer, I think that this will exacerbate uh, differences that already exist in the educational system. And uh, those differences will only get wider the further instruction goes from the classroom. So the classroom, in some ways, Um, is at least in every individual district kind of an equalizer, Uh, and then there are disparities between districts. Now, even within districts, as that instruction moves to home, and there are some places where parents are able to support the instruction a little bit more than others, uh, that ends up being, you know, again, a disparity. What we've tried to do, again, going back to the research, is uh, look at what the research says is the most effective model, and uh, live uh, instruction is stronger for social emotional connection which is very important as roger said the mental health of students who are quarantined at home Um, and for connection to the teacher motivation to stay learning Uh, but to do work and to get feedback on the work and then to improve your work based on the feedback that requires more of a back and forth model Uh, and again that requires students that have enough independence to do back and forth and so Uh, Getting that balance right between synchronous instruction, simultaneous instruction, and asynchronous instruction uh, is still very much a work in progress and that work becomes more challenging the younger the learner is. Okay. I have a, I think, a
1: fascinating question from Allison because it gets us onto the subject of how we go back, how we're thinking about this. And she asks, are you considering a split session in order to lessen the amount of students that are at school in any given time? By which I think she means some going in the morning and some going in the afternoon so that we can maintain classroom distancing and have people go, is that one of the things that you're thinking about? And what else are you thinking about if we go back and still have to modify behaviors for distancing
3: and safety? Tom? Tom you can start. Sure so the Nassau County Superintendents Association has started a work group on this shared by a couple of my colleagues and uh, in fact they're going to be working on exactly this later this morning and uh, I think what I don't want to speak for them but I believe most superintendents think right now all options are on the table so all of these options, whether it's split schedules or uh, some sort of hybrid online uh, mixture or an every other day model, all will require an awful lot of planning. And so we might as well start that planning now, uh, even though we don't know which of the models we might land on because all of them are gonna require a long runway to get there. And so part of what I think my colleagues and this committee are going to do is to identify What are the challenges inherent in each of these models? Uh, What are the resources that will be needed to implement them well? And uh, presumably to make some recommendations to uh, the task force that the regents have set up at the state level that Roger uh, spoke about earlier so that they have our best thinking to inform the recommendations that will come from the state. But I would imagine in the end that the state will probably give us, as they do in a lot of cases, Uh, some broad guidelines, and then within those broad guidelines, we try to tailor things to what our local circumstances and resources are.
2: If this were uh, even a close to normal year, that decision at least maybe could be made easier. However, we have a situation where in terms of resources for doing any of these options, are are very, very slim. And the governor has talked about if we don't get the federal help that uh, he and other states are looking for, we could be cutting state aid by 50%. Um, Earlier, he had made a projection of 20%. Um, A, we don't know where that 20 or 50% will come from, whether it will be done equally across all districts, which would be a disaster for the highest needs districts who get 80% of their money from state aid, as opposed to some districts who only get 10% of their money from state aid. But they all will need extra money, uh, I believe, to have more facilities available, to have teachers uh, on on longer-term uh, contracts, um, longer-hour contracts. Uh, and we don't know what's going to happen with that. The, the other big, big um, fly in the ointment is the new uh, proposal, not proposal, but the order from the governor that uh, the budget uh, votes and the votes for school board elections uh, will be held June 9th and will be done all by mail. The, the usual school board uh, uh, turnouts are someplace around, I mean, Tom, you can correct me, 10, 15% of the voters uh, might come out for uh, on an active day. When, it, when you have a mail ballot that where everyone has something mailed to them, as opposed to requesting a mail ballot which which takes some time and, and uh, opportunity for a, a person to get involved with, if it's mailed directly to every household in the district, you might have people voting uh, for or against in my in my opinion probably against school budgets who might not have ever come to the polls before. Um, and for school board members that might not have been even uh, running before. It, it's going to shake up uh, a local school district on top of, uh, in terms of their local money, no less the state money, which we have no idea what is going to happen there. This resource is a major, major concern.
1: So that money is a fascinating question here. One of the numbers the governor has thrown around is the idea that we could have to cut state aid to schools by 20%. But I don't think anyone thinks that could be done across the board because there are school districts that get almost 80% of their money from the state and there are school districts that get less than 8% of their money from the state. So the likelihood is that wealthy districts might have a cut much larger than 20% of state aid. If it, if it goes as badly as it possibly could. So Tom, what would your budgeting process look like? What would you be looking to cut, or districts like yours, if you lost, let's say all of your
3: state aid? Well, if we, if we lost all of our state aid, I couldn't. It's very hard to contemplate uh, what that budgeting process would look like. How much what of your budget is
1: state aid, sorry.
3: Um, probably about 15%. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and as both you and Roger have said, there are other districts that are much more highly dependent on state aid. Uh, Nevertheless, that money supports teaching salaries. It supports the costs of busing. It supports the cost of maintaining our facilities. So if that money, you know, any cut in that aid results in some sort of loss in program. Mm -hmm. So what we've been doing going into this budgeting cycle is I asked our team to plan for three different levels of cuts from the state. And we were internally calling them the deep, deeper, deepest scenarios and what would be uh, identified at, you know, each of those three cut levels. And how far would we have to go before we had to really start doing things that were dramatic uh, to the program that I think people live in Syosset because they want their kids to receive. And uh, at the level of a 20% cut, I think we could accommodate that with um, not filling positions that are currently vacant, uh, with deferring a lot of maintenance, with deferring a lot of purchasing. Uh, But once we went beyond uh, 20% cut in state aid, then there would be much more significant changes to uh, what would happen in the school district.
1: Okay. Uh, let me go back to a question I've gotten from several people, but it's also another question that Tracy uh, asked, and I think it's one of the most important things. How are you responding? How are school districts responding and how are they going to respond for special needs students, students with English as a second language, and just students that need extra educational assistance? And then Tom, if you want to, well, either one who starts, but also talk about what we might have to do or might be able to do in the summer.
3: Well, we're providing services to those special populations now. And uh, what we're trying to do is measure the kinds of progress that they're making uh, even now, uh, although this is, you know, the online model is not as efficient, not as effective as the in-person model, at least not yet. And uh, as we learn and get better, I hope that the model gets better and that the kinds of progress that we're able to make become better. But until then, what we're trying to do is uh, keep track of their progress, Uh, as they move along. So these populations, at least in Syosset, are not being unserved. Uh, They are being served. The question will be, ultimately, uh, if there is a little bit of loss, how do we make that loss up? So we're accustomed to uh, students moving into Syosset from out of state and may not be on the same pace as our curriculum. And we've always found ways to catch students up. So I do believe that at some point when we're able to get back together with one another again, we'll start to make those kinds of gains where we catch back up to where we need to be. And even with those special populations, we'll find a way to do it. Now, Roger, you, you represent districts, yeah. go
2: ahead, Roger. Some districts have a, a far greater population of special uh, special needs students, whether they be special ed students or uh, ELL students, English language learner students. Um, some districts, the percentages are are way up. They are still providing that service, or are supposed to be providing that service um, as as best they can uh, as general for general ed students. As as time goes on, and uh, we we and and if we don't see the results of growth um, that we would hope that they would have uh, equal at least equal to what the general ed students uh, have then there's going to be a serious problem for some of those districts. Uh, but the, the main thrust is that we will continue services for special ed kids uh, th- the way we have been in the past, and I don't know what that's going to require. Some some kids who go to special, really special needs uh, schools that are not in the school district but cost the school district money, um, uh, some of those, those fees are very very large um, could be a couple hundred thousand dollars a year per student, uh, with with a the shortening of uh, revenues and and uh, it's going to be more and more difficult. The one thing I've been afraid of, I used to we used to have a special ed committee on the, on the regents, and uh, every now and then we'd get uh, uh, people wanting to. Uh, cut back on the due process that, that parents were getting because we were getting too many kids into special ed, et cetera. Um, I, I resisted that and and continue to resist it because um, who knows who's, whose kid is going to have special ed needs and, and all those kids deserve the, the same kind of education opportunity. What I was afraid of though, and I'm still afraid of, is that some of the special needs families who are pushing very hard to make sure that their, their kids are, are getting the adequate education are pushing into uh, a, a group of general ed parents whose kids are now being deprived of 15% of their program. Um, mm-hmm. And where we don't wanna see a war between them. We should all be working together. And I am afraid that this could cause more polarization uh, between special needs families and general ed families.
1: OK, so we have a question from Jerome that I think is a fascinating one, which is we, we do know we have some idea of how to teach math and English and those sorts of things online. But what happens if we keep distance learning and what's happening now with subjects like art and music and, and even physical education, which is, I believe, a legal requirement for many ages of students? How do we do
3: that? Uh, we are doing that now. And uh, those teachers are meeting on a rotation basis with students just as they would in a regular school environment. Uh, One of the challenges that we've been working through is uh, art is a very hands-on kind of uh, uh, subject. And uh, what the teachers have been doing is saying, well, this is a great opportunity to teach art history, for example. So instead of making art, we can at least learn about art. And they have been trying to uh, reimagine their program. Now, obviously that looks different At younger ages than it does at older ages and so some of that is also what kinds of things can you do at home what kinds of materials do you have laying around the house how can you do something that's creative and interesting Uh, one of the challenges early on was uh, recognizing at the older ages let's say high school that uh, doing homework around art was something that wasn't part of the regular school environment so adding that in uh, to the regular uh, core academic classes ended up actually increasing students workload and we heard uh, some feedback about them about that from the parent community. I think also the, the provision of music education is uh, something that is r- really challenging to imagine, at least with large ensemble groups. So I think we've all seen uh, these virtual choirs and virtual orchestras online, and uh, they're very moving, and I hope that uh, they become easier to produce over time. But uh, the idea of working in an ensemble group and what that gives to students uh, both socially and uh, uh, musically, it's going to be very hard to replicate until we're able to be back in person again. And so, it. and that's one of the joys of being in a, a school, if you're a musician, as you have that opportunity. So, we are looking to see how to replicate that online.
2: And the regions, even before any of this uh, virus came about, were in the midst of, and will continue to be in the midst of, looking at um, all diploma requirements, graduation requirements, um, and had had begun to get some input into whether or not passing five regents tests was indeed the right marker for for progress in uh, uh, college or career or even the army. Um, some of the initial uh, uh, work that has come in indicates that that places like art music, physical education which uh, are anecdotally um, more important than than they have been over the years because we have been cutting them out instead of adding them um, are are going to be necessary and there there are subjects such as information literacy and financial literacy and and uh, civic engagement and uh, problem solving that are perhaps more, pertinent to uh, when one graduates from high school, as to what we want kids to know. That's ongoing and was moving in the right direction, or at least a direction of of getting a conclusion to it uh, when this hit, and it's been put off by some time. But it'll be interesting to see how schools and kids handle the fact that we are not going to have Regents tests uh, this year in June or August, and we're not having three through eight testing which takes some of the pressure off um, that some people think we're, were causing uh, education to uh, regress because there was so much time taken for preparation for those tests. Um, this will have an effect on what we come up with for future graduation requirements. So
1: let me ask one that, that sounds maybe a little cynical, but I, I don't really mean it that way. We have, we're gonna have a money problem, and we have a public health problem is there any sense in which it would actually be much cheaper to keep doing distance learning is it cheaper and are we learning enough about how to do it that that's a reasonable decision to say a we don't have the money to spend on operating all these buildings and b we can't safely put all these people in a room so let's find a way to be great at this well i
2: think your second uh, uh problem of we can't find a way to put these kids in a room together is one that is is of major concern uh, to public health and to parents and everybody else and to employees uh the first one can we do what we did before the virus more effectively with more online teaching is is a question um I, and again anecdotally these studies are being done but anecdotally one can one can say that I can say that Uh, a blend of in-school teaching has to be there with uh, all online teaching in order for it to be effective.
1: So, if we went to 90 percent, 10 percent, is there a way that this saves money? Because money is obviously a concern.
2: Um, I don't know, Tom?
3: (laughs) I I think that uh, it overlooks the the question sort of overlooks one other function that I alluded to earlier, which is not every parent is able to work from home. And when parents are working from home, they're not uh, necessarily able to be distracted by assisting their children with their, lo- their own learning. And so can we get better at doing online learning? Absolutely. And do we think that we'll have it figured out after only six weeks? Absolutely not. So are we gonna continue to get better at this? Of course we are.
1: But can't and we th- money?
3: your question is, can it save money? And my response is, I don't know, but I know that if we only look at it from the economics of performing it, then we're overlooking the other major function that our schools serve, which is to free parents up to go uh, work in uh, wherever they need to be. And as we're thinking about some of these hybrid models in the fall, one thought is, you know, if you have multiple children in a family, but they go to different schools because they're different ages and some are some have school Monday, Wednesday, Friday this week, and Tuesday, Thursday next week. And if the other child is not on the same schedule, then you've you know taken away the benefit of them being in school, at least from a childcare perspective. So trying to think through this from the parent lens, as well as from the school lens, is gonna be an important part of how we figure this out. And I think that will just add to the complexity.
2: Yeah, uh, from, I, from the school end, it seems to me, uh, we're still going to need the bulk of the employees, uh, teachers, to, to teach the courses online or blended or in whatever which way. Uh, and that's your, your major expense in a in school district. Um, I don't think that the savings uh, for uh, the maintenance of a building is going to be that much. And in fact, the online teaching might make up more of the costs than uh, than that.
1: Okay, so one question I've just gotten in is whether high school kids, particularly, I guess, in the later years, they're finishing up or are they still going to be as competitive uh, going after college slots and then actually doing their college work? Will they they be as prepared? And I guess that has the most meaning when you compare to other states that may find it easier to reopen than us, maybe doing all their end of year testing that sort of thing. So, Tom, what's your fears and hopes?
3: Um, Actually, I'll share with you. I had a conversation with a number of uh, the leaders of our student government at the high school on exactly this topic. And so I'll just tell you what they said to me. Uh, One of the most thoughtful comments was the kids who are motivated in the physical environment are equally motivated in in the online environment. And the kids who are very hard to motivate in person are no easier to motivate at home. And I think that is um, you know, probably that rings true with a lot of parents. And Are they harder I, to motivate at home? I, I do think that because this is a shift, there isn't a new normal yet. And kids thrive on routine, uh, as we all know. And so this is not yet, it's becoming a routine, but it's not yet as routinized as 12 years of schooling. So once we get to a place where this becomes the routine, this becomes the new normal, uh, we were speaking with a group of parents in the PTA a couple of days ago, and one of the parents made the observation that with school, there's sort of an opening activity and a closing activity, and you have kind of a defined day. With the online environment, that definition has become a little muddier. And so there, as we start to think about what should these routines look like, uh, there, it would probably be advantageous to kids to have a sense of, okay, now school is starting. Okay, now school is ending. Here's where the work belongs. This is the part of the day where you're doing your work. And the motivation will come from having work that feels meaningful as opposed to work that feels like uh, busy work. And so, you know, getting to that is one of the things that we'll be continuing to work on.
2: I haven't seen colleges shrink away from taking New York kids who are not necessarily taking their end-of-the-year Regents tests or other fulfilling the last semester of of work. Um, I think, as I said earlier, colleges are having a a tremendously difficult time of finding students who want to come to them, uh, even at the top-notch colleges. uh, With the cost of college being where they are, there something might have to be done in terms of um, cost-cutting in order to be feasible with colleges that are doing online teaching that are far less expensive. Um, It's the interaction between the college professor and and the student that makes the, and the student activities together that makes college uh, appealing to students and to their parents. If that's not gonna happen, they will take the uh, least expensive alternative. And that is gonna be very rough on a lot of our colleges, especially private colleges, who were not necessarily in great financial shape even going into this, uh, I expect that there will be some uh, colleges falling by the wayside uh, during the next year. And again, colleges are not, I don't think they're shrinking because New York's kids have had a a full uh, year, almost two thirds of a year that uh, to make up whatever difference they are so they can see what kinds of students they are as this goes on if we don't have any kind of indication um in new york versus other states uh i, I don't know how that's going to play with colleges
1: we have a, a big argument and i have several people who've asked variations of this question we've had a big argument in this state about standardized testing both the third grade through eighth grade state tests and the regents test that predates the coronavirus epidemic and is going to post date the coronavirus epidemic it seems likely you're going to have people coming to you next year and saying, you didn't do the third through eighth grade testing, you didn't do the regents, nobody died, nobody got sick, nobody ended up uneducated. How do you answer them when you want to go back to these tests that there's so much opposition to next year and parents are saying why? It was no problem not to do it.
2: I have, a, I have an easy answer. Um, <laughs> I know you do. Those tests were meant to be diagnostic. All the three through eight testing was meant to be diagnostic, meaning Helping teachers and students to know where the weaknesses and strengths are and allow them uh, the opportunity to correct those during the year. Somehow along the line, uh, they became high stakes tests that were um, used to evaluate teachers, principals, and used to even evaluate districts, which still goes on. Um, Once you have the high stakes nature of those tests, they don't become diagnostic anymore. They become uh, penalty oriented tests. Um, I think the regents are certainly moving towards, and would like to move towards, um, tests that are very diagnostic and completely helpful to students and teachers. Um, the federal government has required the three through eight testing. Um, and I think for originally a good purpose, um, to make sure that uh, special uh, needs kids, uh, whether they be special ed or ELL kids, were not being left behind. That therefore the uh, the expression, uh, and that districts would treat all the kids to the to the point of making sure that everyone was was getting services. I think that was long gone when when we started this. Uh, kind of three through eight testing over the last 10 years. Um, I think districts are doing a good job. There are many other ways you can find out uh, if if students are being served or not in the special needs categories. Um, but with that, I'm not sure there was a great purpose for having three through eight testing on, on an annual basis. There have been different alternatives offered, three, five, and seven for math, three, four, six, and eight for English. Um, Uh, which would alleviate some of that problem. But the amount of time that schools spend on both preparing for giving the tests and then grading the tests was way out of proportion to any benefit that they might have given.
1: Okay, Tom, if you can react real quick and then I'll ask one more thing and lead you into a wrap up. Uh,
3: I would just say, you know, the direction that uh, Regent Tillis is describing for the state to kind of iterate those tests is a welcome development. Uh, we obviously need good data in order to make good decisions. We need good data about what's going on right now as we've migrated to online learning. So uh, school districts do have data products that we use that I think are a little um, more fine-grained than the state's test, and we get results from those uh, a lot quicker, and uh, they are uh, not as high stakes, and so they really are an opportunity for us to dipstick things. So we're looking to see how we can use that uh, in this online environment to uh, to make some good decisions about where learners are going to be in the fall uh, when we return. So anything that the state does that uh, works well with that plan uh, ends up helping us.
1: Okay, so I'm going to ask you one more question that will maybe lead both of you and, and Tom, we can start with you into a, a wrap up of, of what our thoughts here are. School for young people obviously presents some of the biggest emotional achievements and markers in their lives. Graduation is one of those Uh, year end sports banquets for seniors and juniors and people even getting out of middle school is one of those the end of uh, all kinds of extracurricular activities are marked with a career by by celebrations and what are you, Tom, we'll start with you and then go to Roger, what are you thinking about how to help people celebrate these milestones? Will there be a graduation? Will there be these banquets? And 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 how will we help people to find the emotional satisfaction they get from these achievements?
3: Yeah, I feel terrible for this year's seniors. Uh, they missed out on a spring sports season. They're missing out on all of these rituals of uh, moving up that they've been looking forward to for years. The high school staff has been talking with uh, leaders in student government, leaders in their PTA, about uh, what kinds of things are possible and what kinds of things would students uh, look forward to and appreciate. And it may be uh, a combination of doing some things in the short term and then delaying something uh, that is more robust to a time when it might be safer. But all of those options are on the table. And the one thing we want our students to know is that uh, we haven't forgotten them. They're very important to us. We know that they've lost something as a result of uh, this, their senior year, and uh, we're going to try and make it as best as we can for them. Thanks.
2: Um, One of the things that uh, I guess people are beginning to adapt very, very small, uh, the Tilla Center, which I I know well, uh, started a program uh, about uh, a month and a half ago asking students who would normally be in year-end concerts or performances uh, of some kind in their schools to submit uh, a uh, video to the Tillis Center. And we have just actually yesterday uh, started putting them online so that the students will have an opportunity to um, show their talents. And I I was amazed watching last night. Uh, The talents are great on Long Island, very, very good. Um, So you you have to create and adapt if you can, and certainly not the same as a live performance. I think the culinary services, the motels, uh, the, the hotels that go around graduations are certainly going to suffer as other uh, businesses have suffered because they won't have those graduation ceremonies. It's pretty clear they're certainly not going to have them in, in June. Um, we have seen some districts announce that there will be a delay in having it uh, a, a real ceremony uh, uh, in the fall. Again, unbeknownst as to what time that could be, um, or bringing it together and having a cere- joint ceremony with next year's graduates, diplomas will be given. Uh, there's no question diplomas will be given. New York City has a, has announced already that they will, will be having a, a, an online ceremony uh, with several stars of uh, stage, screen, and television, and sports, probably. Um, to uh, for all the kids in the city who will get their diplomas uh, by mail. Um, I, that's, that's the only one I've heard of that has been specific at this point. Okay,
1: well, I wanna thank you both so much. I'm gonna to toss this back to our publisher, Debbie Krennick, so she can help us usher out what has been an incredibly speedy and interesting hour of talk. So thank you both so much. Debbie? Pleasure, thank yes. you. Uh,
0: I really appreciate you both uh, sharing your insights and your time with us today. Um, Thanks, to Lane for moderating and to you, our audience, as well. This webinar was the first in our education series. As details become available about the possibility of summer school and about what students could uh, expect this fall, we'll host additional webinars with those who are on the academic front lines. A reminder to everyone that if you missed any portion of today's webinar, it will be available on newsday.com. You can also find links to past health webinars and complete continuing coverage of the coronavirus there. And we really wanna hear from you as well. Before you close out of today's webinar, please take a minute to fill out our survey. Let us know what topics you'd like us to address in future webinars, it's very helpful to us. Thank you again for joining us and to you and your families, please continue to stay safe.
3: Thank you.